Our Father, we do thank you that you are a good and gracious God who sustains all things by your powerful word. Uh, We thank you that the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Father, we thank you that we are able to come into a personal relationship with you through faith in the Lord Jesus by your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Father, this morning as we think about what we believe of the Holy Spirit, that we would see this morning that the Spirit is the source of all life and sanctifies us for eternal life through faith in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, I was putting our daughter Evie to bed. I think she was probably around three or four years old at the time. And, you know, as children often are in the dark, she was a little bit scared of monsters or things that would go bump in the night. And so I said, you know, well, well, let's pray about it. We'll pray and Jesus will protect you. To which she answered me, how is Jesus going to protect me when he is up in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father from where he'll come to judge the living and the dead? (laughs) That's not what she said, that's what she meant. How how is Jesus going to uh, protect me when he is up there in heaven with the Father? And so then I had to kind of go, oh, well, I I guess we're about about to have a Trinitarian conversation with a three or four-year-old. Well, um, the the Father and the Son send the Spirit, and the Spirit is here with us now, and the the Spirit will will protect you, will will minister to you. And and I think I kind of fluffed my way through somehow, and I, I, I just distinctly remember this kind of twinge of embarrassment, even as those words came out of my mouth, that the Spirit of God is here with us, right here and now. I mean, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I say that in the creed, but it's a, it's a little bit embarrassing, isn't it? I mean, do you really believe in spirits? You know, I mean, surely when we say the Apostles' Creed... We, we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, but I, I still think theism and deism in its various forms still has a lot of sway in the human psyche, so I'm not so embarrassed about that. And, and certainly we say, I believe in Jesus Christ. I think that's even easier to confess because he's a historical person who changed the known worlds. But do I believe in the Holy Spirit? I mean, surely we did away with all that childish, mythical naivety in the Enlightenment. You know, surely you can only touch, uh, trust what you touch and see and feel and can prove, and there's no such thing as ghosts and spirits or the supernatural. I mean, do you really believe in that kind of mumbo-jumble, that there is this omnipotent presence, uh, this spirit that animates all life, that there is an invisible person here now with us in this room that mediates the personal presence of God, that this unseen person works upon you and dwells inside you so that you are freed from your slavery to sin? Do you believe that there is a spirit that unites you, a creature, with the divine creator as a child of the Father, with Jesus the Son? Do you believe that there really is a spirit that empowers you to choose the Father's will as Jesus chooses the Father's will, a spirit that enables you to confess that Jesus is Christ and Lord. Do you really believe in the Holy Spirit? And if you do, what do you believe about the Holy Spirit? Some sort of impersonal force, like, you know, some Star Wars Jedi bacteria midichlorian thing? Or, Or is it a person? It a person? He a person? She a person? What, what do we mean when we talk about the Holy Spirit? 
Now, you might have noticed that the Apostles' Creed is pretty light on in detail when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Now, early on, we get that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and then we get this line that I believe in the Holy Spirit, and and that's really all you get here in this early creed. It's a little bit more developed in the Nicene Creed of the 4th century, but I think it's really important that even this brief declaration is here in the Apostles' Creed because Christians do indeed believe in the Holy Spirit. It's essential to our faith. In fact, this simple confession declares at least three essential truths of the Christian faith. Uh, Firstly, to believe in the Holy Spirit means that we believe that life has its origin in God and not with us. Secondly, to believe in the Holy Spirit means that we believe no one can transcend finite creaturely life to the holiness of divine eternal life. And thirdly, to believe in the Holy Spirit means that we believe God graciously makes us his, uh, makes his creatures holy for eternal life with him as his children. Right? Those are the three things that we're going to explore this morning. In the coming weeks, we'll look a little bit more about the work of the Holy Spirit. Next week, uh, the Spirit and the Church. But these three things are a good place to start. It's not everything that you can say about the Spirit. And in fact, if you're kind of a curious person that would like to read a little bit more, I have a, a book recommendation for you, seeing as uh, Ben is away, I'll, I'll take the, the book recommendation role. This is a book called uh, The Holy Spirit by John Owen, written about 400 years ago. I think it's probably still one of the best books ever written on the Holy Spirit. I recommend this particular version. Um, it's an abridged version, which is about half the size of the original, because the Puritans did love to repeat themselves. And when they took out the repeats, it halved in size. Um, So it's much more readable, but you can also find the original work. I think it's called Pneumatologia, if you maybe online as a PDF or something. But this book, The Holy Spirit, is excellent at kind of searching out some of the the deep things and the biblical truths of the Holy Spirit. All right, here we are. First point, the origin of life. Now, I don't know if you know this, but your life is unique. I'm not talking about how your mum always told you that you're a precious individual uh, snowflake and no one else is like you, although I'm sure that's true. I mean, it's unique that you are alive, that you are living. Now, surely there are, what are we up to, 7 billion plus people in this, uh, plant, on this planet and counting, uh, and there's probably more animals, or there definitely is more animals and organisms besides, but it's not at all common to find life at all in this universe we live in. You know, it's front-page news if they even find a bacteria on the planet Mars. No, it's unusual that you are alive. It's unique that we have life at all on this oversized rock hurtling through space. It's not only unique, it's actually incredible. And I don't know if you know this, But that also means that your life is really quite perilous. The conditions for your existence are really very fragile. Now, we we tend to forget that when we're healthy and well and we're, we're conquering life, we're winning at life. But you seem to remember it very quickly when you pull a muscle in your back just by picking up your undies off the floor. Um, About two months ago, I picked up our pet rabbit and I, I pulled a ligament or something in my hand that is still not fixed. It, the rabbit probably weighs about 200 grams. And I, I don't know what I did, but it's, it's still sore. 
I remember even also seeing an animated video of how a baby gets born in part of our antenatal classes. You've got to do like a little corkscrew to kind of work their way out and there's all these different things that can go wrong. And you think, how does anyone even get born? How are we alive on this rock at all? And when you think of all the little things that just might end your existence, how have we survived on this planet for this long? And I don't know if you know this, but this also means that your life actually isn't your own. You didn't create yourself. In fact, you were given life by two other living beings who maybe didn't intend to create your life or perhaps the opposite. They very much wanted to create life but found it actually very quite difficult. And and now that you are born into life, you will live for some time and then your living will be over. And neither you or any other creature on this planet can reanimate you. There's no technology that can bring you back from the place of the dead. You were given life and one day your life will be taken away. That's a sobering truth. And I don't know if you know this, but this means that all life has its origin somewhere outside of you. It means that we are not the source of life. Uh, Even though sometimes I like to believe that it's my own and I can wield it in any way that I see fit. The truth is, life is a unique and precious and finite gift. And the biblical account is that all life has its origin in the Spirit of God. Now, you remember Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, God uh, makes a carbon-based human form out of the soil, out of the dirt, and then what does he do to bring this carbon-based form to life? But he breathes into it, and the man becomes a living being. That same word for breath and wind is the same word for spirit. And you see this idea again in Psalm 104, uh, verses 27 to verse 30. Let me read them for you. It says, all creatures look to you to give them their food at their proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath or their spirit, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit or your breath, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. You see, in the Bible, the Spirit is uh, how the Bible is how it's. Sorry, let me start that again. The Spirit is not only how the Bible speaks of life's origin with God the Father. The Spirit is also how God the Father sustains all life. And this means that every creature owes their existence to God Himself. And that's a radical idea. Uh, I taught SRE for about 13 years around this local area and every year, without fail, I would get this question. I, I even get it from my own kids. I get it from adults as well, so don't be ashamed if this is your question. The question is this, who made God? It's a simple question and actually the answer is also quite simple, if even you might find it uh, unsatisfactory. The answer is no one. No one made God. Because no one can make God. Because if someone made God, then that someone would be God. And if someone made that God, then that someone would be God. You see, the thing, the someone that originates all life is God. Life begins with God. It ends with God. It is in God. In fact, to be God means to be the creator of heaven and earth. 
To be God means that God is not a creature. God is separate from his creation. He is not dependent on his creation, nor is he to be confused as even part or or the whole of his creation. Andrew Leslie reminded us of this a few weeks back uh, when he was preaching here, that the Christian God is a triune God, a community God of Father, Son and Spirit, a God that pre-exists in a mutually glorifying relationship of love that overflows in abundance to create and sustain the life of his creatures. A love that always expands to have room for more. And it is out of the overflowing love of this triune God that any life at all, even yours, is made possible. And this God is a generous God. This God is a creator God. This God is our very life. And that radically reshapes our view of what it means to be alive. Because it means that we are not autonomous, but dependent on him for life. It means that we are not the authors of life, but we are creatures. It means that we are not entitled grumblers, but instead we are thankful recipients of all his good gifts. When we confess to believe in the Holy Spirit, we are firstly confessing that life is not our own. Because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of life. And I think this view asks us some really hard and uncomfortable questions. Firstly, are you grateful to the Father for the Spirit of life? Or perhaps, are you living in willful ignorance? Happily accepting life from the Father and all his good gifts but also denying that he has any claim over your life whatsoever. Or or perhaps are you a grumbler, always feeling entitled to more, always envying the life of someone else, always upset with what you've been given? Or are you perhaps an overly ambitious go-getter in life, never content with where you are or what you have, always wanting to scoop more of life into your own lap? You see, this is what makes the idea of sin so abhorrent. You know, you may be a really wonderful citizen who does good and wonderful things, but you do all those things not because you know and depend on the one who gives you your gifts, your talents and your very life, but you do all this in spite of the one who gives you your gifts and your talents and your very life. You claim life for yourself while rejecting the giver of your very life. That's what sin is. And that's why sin is not a character judgment about you, whether you're a good person or a nice person or a generous person. It's a relational judgment. That's what sin is. It's about your relationship with the God who gives and sustains your life by his Holy Spirit. Now, there are those of us who live in opposition to the spirit of life and those who live according to the spirit of life. Now, to use the language of the Apostle Paul here in Romans chapter 8, uh, the question is, do you live according to the Spirit or do you live according to the flesh? So now we've established the Spirit is the origin of all life. Let's look at the realm of the flesh in Romans 8. Now, it's apparent that even though all life has its origin with the Spirit of God and all life is sustained by the Spirit of God, 
Not all people live in a personal relationship with God the Father. In fact, the existence of death is the proof that we are cut off from the Father who gives life by his Spirit. You know, like the Valentine's Day rose cut off from the stem and placed in a a beautiful vase of water, it has the appearance of life, it has its own beauty, even its own smell, but it is only beautiful for a time. The truth is, it is slowly dying, if not described as dead already. This is what Paul is talking about when he speaks about those who live in the realm of the flesh. Now, throughout his writing, Paul uses the flesh to mean two different things. Uh, Sometimes he uses flesh to simply mean your flesh and blood, uh, your bones. And so at the beginning of Romans chapter 1, verse 3, he says, we believe Jesus Christ who came in the flesh. And that's what he's talking about, his his physicality. At other times, Paul uses flesh to mean a whole way of life, a way of being, a way of existence. And so here in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, this is how he uses it. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. You see, Paul often uses this little preposition, according to, just to let you know that he's talking about a whole way of being, rather than just you as a physical person. Now, we all live in fleshly, physical bodies, But some of us here actually live according to the flesh and others of us according to the Spirit. To confess that we believe in the Holy Spirit is to confess that you believe people experience life in in one of these two spheres, the sphere of the flesh and that of the Spirit. Now, it's not a big leap for our imagination, I think, to understand these two kind of realms. It's often portrayed in pop culture as you know, a little demon on one shoulder or a, or a spirit or an angel on the other. Sometimes it's kind of internalised as this inner voice or it's dematerialised as your invisible, most authentic self, the true you on the inside you know, versus some external opposition. Either way... The realm of the flesh and the realm of the spirit are the two spheres of being that are in opposition to each other. And these are the spheres that speak of our life. They speak of our vitality. They speak of our orientation. Because, verse 6, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. And because these uh, two spheres are about our vitality and life, these are also relational spheres of living. So verse 7, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. To live according to the flesh is to be against the God of life. Short and simple. And therefore, to live in the realm of the flesh is to face death. Even if your life is excellent, even if your life is generous and and charitable, even if you love others at great personal cost to yourself, you are still a finite creature. You are still decaying and you will still one day face certain death. Death is the evidence that the relationship of our world with the God of life is not as it should be. If we lived in harmony with the Father, there would simply be no death in our world. 
But as Paul has said early in Romans, there is no one righteous. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All have turned away from the Lord, the giver of life. All have exchanged the glory of God to seek their own glory. All of us live according to the flesh. All of us are enslaved to sin. All of us have a death problem that we just can't sort out ourselves. To say we believe in the Holy Spirit, that we believe no one can transcend our finite, creaturely life to be uh, in the holiness of divine, eternal life. That's what it means. The power is not within you, nor is it in any other created thing or technology. And I wonder if this way of viewing life explains your own experience of life, if it explains your frustration with life, if it explains the vulnerability you feel in your life, if it explains your longing for a life that is more full than this rather than futile. I wonder if it explains why even our best human efforts at progress are always thwarted by human chaos and conceit. See, it's because we live in the realm of the flesh. And this is what it looks like. But life is given by God's Spirit. It is given by God's Spirit to all people, but it's not perfected in all people until we come to receive the Holy Spirit. And this means that life according to the flesh will always end in condemnation and death. It is a life of groaning and frustration, even though it is punctuated with beauty and goodness. Under the surface always lurks our fragility and discord with the God of life. How are you feeling? But there is good news. And the good news is there in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So let's turn and look at living in the realm of the Spirit. Because there's a great contrast here between the realm of the flesh and the Spirit. The contrast of life in the realm of the Spirit is that the Spirit perfects us and makes us fit for a personal relationship with the Father through the Son. The Spirit gives life to all creatures, but in a special way, those who put their faith in Jesus are rescued from the mortality of the flesh and given eternal life. Instead of a mind governed by death and hostility to God, the mind of the Spirit is life and peace with God. To those who put their faith in Jesus, we are no longer cut off from the God of life, but are now made children of God, part of his family. Verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. To those who put their faith in Jesus, we no longer seek our own will be done. But the life of the Spirit means we now pray as Jesus prayed. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, 
but what you will. That's why we pray our family prayer. We pray our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as as is in heaven. And this is how, verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. It, It testifies to us because we now want what the Father wants. That's what it means to now live in the realm of the Spirit. Our prayers are shaped by his will for our life and not for our own. Our prayers are shaped by the prayers of God's Son. Our hearts long for his kingdom come and not ours. This is what it means to confess you believe in the Holy Spirit. It means we are empowered by the Spirit of holiness to be obedient to the Father as Jesus was perfected by the Holy Spirit to be the Son. And even though we still now live in our mortal bodies that will decay and perish, even though we are subject to suffering and hardship, even though we still face death, we do so with the confidence of the Holy Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Because if the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, verse 11, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Now, sometimes on the surface, it might look like there is no difference between those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the spirit. Sometimes it looks that if we are in fact just living the same life, that there is no realm of life where people live a holy life by the Holy Spirit. I mean, Christians, we still face death and suffering. We're still fallible and weak. You know, the the failures of the church still look all too much like every other human community. But the two realms of life according to the flesh and life according to the spirit are very different. Life according to the spirit means we desire what the Father desires. And the spirit makes us see when our desires are out of shape The Spirit then convicts us of our sin. This is one of the great roles of the Holy Spirit. And if you ever doubt that you're a Christian because you find it difficult to follow Jesus, then just check your own response to sinfulness. You know, in that moment, do you acknowledge that you sin? And does it grieve you when you acknowledge your sin? Do you then cry, Abba, Father? Because there is the Spirit testifying that we are children of the Father. Now, those in the realm of the flesh don't care if they are Christian or not. They're not worried about what the Father wants. It doesn't keep them awake at night. But if you live in the realm of the Spirit, if you desire what the Father desires, then the Spirit will convict you of your sin and reassure you of your forgiveness. Life according to the Spirit means we trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. Life, according to the Spirit, means we put to death the misdeeds of the body, Romans 8, verse 13. Life, according to the Spirit, means we don't live as slaves again to fear, verse 15. We're not enslaved to the fear of death and our mortality. The Spirit that gave life to Christ and raised him from the dead also lives in you. And we don't live in fear of being condemned by the God of life because there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so I'm not embarrassed to confess that I believe 
in the Holy Spirit. Because I recognise that I am not the source of life. I recognise that in the flesh we are enslaved to sin and death. But in Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit, we have been rescued from this evil age. We have been liberated from slavery to sin, reconciled to the God of life and made children of the Father. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, verse 17. So let me ask you the question we started off with. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Do you believe your life is not your own? Do you believe that we all have a death problem, being cut off from the God of life? Do you believe also that God graciously makes his creatures holy for eternal life through faith in his Son by the Holy Spirit? Because I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe the Spirit is the source of all life and I believe the Spirit sanctifies us for eternal life through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are a good and gracious God that is the origin and sustainer of all life. And we thank you, Father, that in a very particular and special way, you have called us out of the darkness of death and the realm of the flesh to belong to the realm of the Spirit, that we might be made holy, that we might be perfected in Christ, to be like the Son, to want what you want, to desire what you desire, to pray your kingdom come and to know the eternity of life in relationship with you. And so, Father, we pray that you would continue your work of the Spirit in us until that day when you call us home and we see you face to face. Amen.